Hey, it's Guy here. So have you ever wondered why the decisions we make from choosing which groceries to buy to whether we should have kids are so difficult to make? Well, it turns out committing to one choice over another can actually help us shape our identities. Today's show is called Decisions, 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 and it originally aired in March of 2017. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. And on the show today, decisions. Ideas about how we make them and why we tend to agonize over them. Because at some point, we all have to make a decision about something. It can be as trivial as picking at a restaurant. Well, I avoid Yelp for this very reason. I've never Don't look at looked it. at Yelp. This is Malcolm Gladwell, by the way. Hi. Malcolm Gladwell is, well, you know who he is. Writer, podcast host, Yelp hater. I know about it. Others talk about it. Yeah, this happens to me. I have never opened it. Don't do it. I won't do it. I, I... And to Malcolm, this feels like a kind of freedom. He doesn't have to scroll through hundreds and hundreds of options on where to eat dinner. Because the truth is, there's such a thing as too much choice. So, uh, okay, so can, can I ask you a question about Howard Moskowitz? Yes, yes, famous Howard. Okay, so who was he? Howard Moskowitz was a psychophysicist. So psychophysicists are people who are in the business of measuring things. And he might be the greatest character I ever hung out with. Wow. He was short and round and in the best possible way, exuberantly Jewish. You know, full of Yiddishisms and curiosity. I mean, because one of the things that I, when I wrote about him, he's responsible for kind of uncovering truth about how human beings make decisions. Howard Moskowitz uncovered that truth while working on something kind of unexpected. Malcolm Gladwell picks up the story from the TED stage. Howard graduated with his doctorate from Harvard and he set up a little consulting shop in um, White Plains, New York. And one of his first clients was, this is many years ago, back in the early 70s, one of his first clients was Pepsi. And Pepsi came to Howard and they said, you know, we, there's this new thing called aspartame and we would like to make diet Pepsi. And we'd like you to figure out how much aspartame we should put in each can of diet Pepsi in order to have the perfect drink. Now that sounds like an incredibly straightforward question to answer. And that's what Howard thought. Because Pepsi told him, look, we're working with a band between 8 and 12%. Anything below 8% sweetness is not sweet enough. Anything above 12% sweetness is too sweet. We want to know what's the sweet spot between 8 and 12. (laughs) Now, if I gave you this problem to do, you would all say, it's very simple. What we do is we make up a big experimental batch of Pepsi at every degree of sweetness, 8%, 8.1, 8.2, 8.3, all the way up to 12. And we try this out with thousands of people, and we plot the results on a curve, and we take the most popular concentration, right? Really simple. Howard does the experiment, and he gets the data back, and he plots it on a curve, and all of a sudden he realizes it's not a nice bell curve. In fact, the data doesn't make any sense. It's a mess. It's all over the place. And what Howard discovers when he does that work for them is that people's answers do not coalesce around a single solution. There are some people who like their Diet Pepsi really sweet, and some who don't like it sweet at all. And they're not part of some kind of continuum. They are at completely different places in the world of diet colas and the world of sweetness. And so he he says, look, we've been operating under a paradigm which says there is a perfect diet Pepsi. He says, that's wrong. There are only perfect diet Pepsis. But Pepsi didn't buy this idea that there could be more than one perfect product. And neither did anyone else in the food industry. But that didn't stop Howard Moskowitz from talking about it for years. 
He was obsessed with it. And finally, he had a breakthrough. Campbell's Soup. Campbell's made Prego. And Prego in the early 80s was struggling next to ragu, which was the dominant spaghetti sauce of the 70s and 80s. So they came to Howard and they said, fix us. And Howard looked at their product line and he said, what you have is a dead tomato society. So he said, this is what I want to do. And he got together with the Campbell's Soup Kitchen and he made 45 varieties of spaghetti sauce. And he varied them according to every conceivable way that you can vary tomato sauce. By sweetness, by level of garlic, by tartness, by sourness, by tomatoiness, by visible solids, my favorite term in, in, this, in the spaghetti sauce business. Every conceivable way you can vary spaghetti sauce, he varied spaghetti sauce. And sure enough, if you sit down and you analyze these, all this data on spaghetti sauce, you realize that all Americans fall into one of three groups. There are people who like their spaghetti sauce plain, there are people who like their spaghetti sauce spicy, and there are people who like it extra chunky. And of those three facts, the third one was the most significant. Because at the time, in the early 1980s, if you went to a supermarket, you would not find extra chunky spaghetti sauce. And Prego turned to Howard and they said, are you telling me that one third of Americans crave extra chunky spaghetti sauce and yet no one is servicing their needs? And he said, yes. And Prego then went back and completely reformulated their spaghetti sauce and came out with a line of extra chunky that immediately and completely took over the spaghetti sauce business in this country. And over the next 10 years, they made $600 million off their line of extra chunky sauces. I mean, was the idea behind having many pasta sauces or, or, or many different kinds of Pepsis, was the idea behind that that if you gave people lots of choices, they'd be happier? Uh, I don't know. So I, I'm not sure that even Howard would go that far. I think what he would say is that for too long, people in positions of authority in places like the food industry assumed it was their job to define what pasta sauce was or what Diet Cola was and to educate the rest of us to the point where we agree with them. And what Howard was saying was that's wrong, that's backwards, that if you want to discover what pasta sauce is, you have to listen to the people who are eating pasta sauce and let their own particular idiosyncrasies be your guide. That's a separate question from the question of whether multiple choices make you happier. I think what he was perhaps thinking of is that you enter the supermarket knowing that you are someone who likes spicy pasta sauce, and now there's spicy pasta sauce for you, and you almost kind of ignore all the other choices. All I've done is I've done a much better job of delivering to you something that conforms with your own taste. People don't know what they want, right? As Howard loves to say, the mind knows not what the tongue wants. It's a mystery. An important, a critically important step in understanding our own desires and tastes is to realize that we cannot always explain what we want deep down. If I asked all of you, for example, in this room, what you want in a coffee, you know what you'd say? Every one of you would say, I want a dark, rich, hearty roast. So people always say when you ask them what they want in a coffee, what do you like? Dark, rich, hearty roast. <laughs> what percentage of you actually like a dark, rich, hearty roast? According to Howard, somewhere between 25 and 27% of you. Most of you like milky, weak coffee. But you will never, ever say to someone who asks you what you want that I want a milky, weak coffee. Wow, most people want milky, weak coffee. I did not know that. I mean, but, but wouldn't you agree that, like, like your own world is, your own personal life is, is just so much better today because you can pick among many different kinds of coffees, right? I mean, I, I kind of yeah. feel that way, right? I do, but, I, but where I think the psychologists who study choice are really right is when they move beyond some of these more prosaic consumer choices into things like dating. So where now you have dating marketplaces in urban centers that are where choice is essentially infinite. And I think that is a problem. There is a case where I do not think increased choice is bringing happiness. I think it's just creating an, a kind of endless treadmill of choice. But I just don't think it's as simple as it's always better to have less choice. But I think we have this assumption that 
that a choice has consequences, right? Like, like you remember those choose your own venture books? You know, if you if you chose, you know, to go to page nine, you might die off a cliff. But if you went to page twelve, you would you'd go to Candyland. You know, I mean, the choices had yeah, but choices they have consequences, but not predictable consequences. That's my point. Yes, they have consequences, but you can't know beforehand, so stop worrying about it. Yeah. I mean, easy for you to say, right? Do you know? <laughs> no, do you know? easy for all of us to say. It's a very, you just have flip the switch in your head. It doesn't matter. So are you telling me you are always the person who picks the right line at the supermarket? No. I, okay. I didn't even worry about it. I just like get into a line, stop worrying about it. And, you know, daydream happily while you wait. What if you get into the line, right? You get into a line and you look at the last person in the line that you didn't choose. And then you see like four people get behind that person. And then they end up checking out before you even get to the register. Doesn't that drive you crazy? (laughs) I I cannot help you. I can't help you. You're too far gone for me. We occupy different universes, you and I. But I think that I reflect the sensibility of most people, like choice and decision making is actually hard, right? I mean, don't you ever agonize over decision-making at all? Yeah, not those kinds of decisions. So I'm astonished by the way that Americans agonize about their college decisions. Hmm. And the reason I find it so preposterous is that there is an assumption that the thing that makes an education good or bad is knowable beforehand. I would have thought that the ingredients of a good education are largely unknowable. The most important thing about my education at the University of Toronto was the fact that I met a guy named Tom Connell. And I hung out with Tom and had a million fantastic conversations with Tom and emerged from university a vastly wiser and more interesting person. There is not, in a million years, I would, I, how would I have known whether Tom was going to be there? It's also pointless because... Most universities, the question of whether you get a good education is up to you, not up to the university. That, so I think a lot of these choice worries are just based on this preposterous notion of the consumer as a passive recipient of prepackaged experiences. And most of life is not prepackaged. Well, except for spaghetti sauce. And even that's not always an easy decision. I haven't counted recently, but at one point I think I went into a grocery store and discovered 36 different varieties within one brand. So if you had to, just as a thought experiment, if you had to pick, would you go for uh, smooth pasta sauce or uh, zesty or extra chunky or spicy? What I've discovered is it's actually much more important about how you do the pasta than how you do the pasta sauce. So what do you do, like elbow and rigatoni and ziti and linguine and no, angel no, no, hair? how you, you cook it. Yeah. But it's, what do you decide which one do you make? Oh, I, you know, I, does it matter? I mean, they seem all very, very similar to me. That's Malcolm Gladwell. You can hear all of his talks at TED.com. By the way, check out his awesome podcast. It's called Revisionist History. On the show today, ideas about decisions, the easy ones and the agonizing ones. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First to Simply Safe, Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is self installed wireless protection for your home. The company was founded by an electrical engineer whose friends were burglarized. They wanted home security, but most systems were too complicated and too expensive. So he built Simply Safe. Now they protect over 2 million people. And with Simply Safe, there are no annual contracts. Learn more about Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/radio hour. Thanks also to Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs presenting Talks at GS. Goldman Sachs's interview show that convenes leading thinkers to share insights and ideas shaping the world. Recent episodes feature Disney's Bob Iger, journalist Katie Couric, and GM's Mary Barra. That's Talks at GS, available on Hulu, Amazon Prime, Yahoo Finance, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at GS.com. 
And before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about another show that I happen to host. It's called How I Built This. And every week, I speak with founders behind some of the most incredible companies about how they did it. You can find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about decisions, how we make them, why they can be so hard, and how lots of choices don't necessarily help. Like like when you're standing in the grocery aisle, paralyzed by the prospect of choosing from 36 varieties of spaghetti sauce. Yeah, we should try to minimize the number of times we're paralyzed over what ought to be mundane choices. This is Sheena Iyengar. Look, in the end of the day, the stakes on this aren't really very high, so just choose. Sheena is a professor at Columbia Business School. I study why choice matters to people and how they can get the most from this thing called choice. But even though Sheena says we shouldn't get paralyzed by things like spaghetti sauce, she still admits that it happens all the time. She even has a term for it. The choice overload problem. The choice overload problem. Sheena explained that idea from the TED stage. So when I was a graduate student at Stanford University, I used to go to this very, very upscale grocery store. It was a store called Draeger's. They had 250 different kinds of mustards and vinegars and over 500 different kinds of fruits and vegetables and more than two dozen different kinds of bottled water. I used to love going to this store, but on one occasion, I asked myself, well, how come you never buy anything? So I one day decided to do a little experiment. And we picked jam for our experiment. They had 348 different kinds of jam. We set up a little tasting booth right near the entrance of the store. We either put out six different flavors of jam or 24 different flavors of jam. And we looked at two things. First, in which case were people more likely to, you know, stop, sample some jam? More people stopped when there were 24, about 60%, than when there were six, about 40%. The next thing we looked at is in which case were people more likely to buy a jar of jam. And now we see the opposite effect. Of the people who stopped when they were 24, only 3% of them actually bought a jar of jam. Of the people who stopped when they were six, well now we saw that 30% of them actually bought a jar of jam. Now if you do the math, people were at least six times more likely to buy a jar of jam if they encountered six than if they encountered 24. The main reason for this is because, well, we might enjoy gazing at those giant walls of mayonnaises, mustards, vinegars, jams, but we can't actually do the math of comparing and contrasting and actually picking from that stunning display. So it was this study that made Sheena think, maybe we've gone too far. Maybe companies are overloading consumers with choice, which is why Sheena's advice to companies today is to cut. Cut. You've heard it said before, but it's never been more true than today that less is more. When Procter & Gamble went from 26 different kinds of head and shoulders to 15, they saw an increase in sales by 10%. When the Golden Cat Corporation got rid of their 10 worst-selling cat litter products, they saw an increase in profits by 87%. You know, the average grocery store today offers you 45,000 products, but the ninth biggest retailer in the world today is Aldi's, and it offers you only 1,400 products, one kind of canned tomato sauce. Wow, that, that's totally counterintuitive. But, but, I mean, companies are actually seeing an increase in sales when, when they reduce the number of choices? Yes. It just looks less overwhelming. I can now see that, oh, okay, this is the head and shoulder I want. And when Costco recently reduced their number of choices, they actually saw an increase in sales. Really? Mm-hmm. They just, like, cut back things they offer? They just cut across the board, yeah. Even Walmart is beginning to cut across. So so what is it about choice that overwhelms us, that, that, that can paralyze us? So I think there's a few things that happen when we get paralyzed by choice. Sometimes when we're trying to choose amongst really minor things, like let's say you're looking at a menu in a restaurant and Mm. you start deliberating over, I don't know, the steak versus the salmon versus the salad, and you start contemplating all different kinds of criteria by which you want to compare and contrast your options. Yeah. But I think the other times when we get paralyzed 
is because it really is something that we are very aware is very, very consequential. Like, should I get married or not? Should I have a child or not? There's a lot of unknowns there. So how is it that both of those scenarios produce agony? Because there's this thing called heart versus mind or gut versus reason, however you want to label it, even though they're both working in concert. I think the reality is you're constantly asking yourself two questions. What do I want and what should I choose? And those don't give you the same answers because when you ask yourself what should I choose, it tells you what you ought to want tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. When you ask yourself what you want, we're very aware of the fact that what I want right now may not be what I want in five minutes. So that's what it's about. It's about what I want and what I should want? That's the inherent conflict. Do, do all of us feel this conflict, you know, when it comes to, say, you know, choosing jam or choosing an entree? Like, is this just part of human behavior? The desire for personal control and competency is innate. But everything else about choice is learned. Wow. And a lot of what your culture teaches you is how to think about your life and whether to perceive things in terms of choice or in terms of something else, right? Yeah. I think to the extent that you see a choice is how you frame your life. That's not a given. We as Americans think that choice is a, quote, objective thing. It's not. It's a very subjective thing. And because choice is learned, Shinya Yengar says choice can work differently in different cultures. And she got a glimpse of that early on in her career when she was doing some research in Japan. On my first day, I went to a restaurant and I ordered a cup of green tea with sugar. After a pause, the waiter said, one does not put sugar in green tea. I know, I said, I'm aware of this custom, but I really like my tea sweet. In response, he gave me an even more courteous version of the same explanation. One does not put sugar in green tea. I understand, I said, that the Japanese do not put sugar in their green tea, but I'd like to put some sugar in my green tea. <laughs> Surprised by my insistence, the waiter took up the issue with the manager. Pretty soon, a lengthy discussion ensued, and finally the manager came over to me and said, I am very sorry, we do not have sugar. <laughs> Since I couldn't have my tea the way I wanted it, I ordered a cup of coffee, which the waiter brought over promptly. Resting on the saucer were two packets of sugar. <laughs> my failure to procure myself a cup of sweet green tea was not due to a simple misunderstanding. This was due to a fundamental difference in our ideas about choice. The American way, to quote Burger King, is to have it your way, because as Starbucks says, happiness is in your choices. <laughs> but from the Japanese perspective, it's their duty to protect those who don't know any better. <laughs> in this case, the ignorant gaijin for making the wrong choice. Americans tend to believe that they've reached some sort of pinnacle in the way they practice choice. They think that choice is seen through the American lens best fulfills an innate and universal desire for choice in all humans. So, so why is choice seen as like this, this great American virtue? Well, you could argue that the unique history of this country made us more likely to have it than any other country. And that is because in 1776, our forefathers began to think about what a political democratic institution might look like. But at the same time, you have Adam Smith and capitalism and the idea of the independent individual consumer. And pretty shortly thereafter, you have Ralph Waldo Emerson um, with the ideas of self-reliance. Hmm. I mean, there must be a correlation between an emphasis on choice and a culture that that elevates the, the individual over the collective. Oh, there is. So certainly in cultures that are more collectivistic, they tend to value more social conformity, more of a sense of duty and responsibility. 
And so you, you ask yourself, what are my responsibilities and what would other people expect of me? Whereas cultures that value more independence or individualism value more self-reliance, personal preference matching, what's really good for me, what's the right fit for me, what is it that I really care about, what do I want? That being said, individualism is on the rise and that, that, that's probably one of our biggest exports around the globe. The question is, does everyone want that export? Does everyone want lots of choices? Sheena decided to go to Eastern Europe to find out. Here I interviewed people who were residents of formerly communist countries who had all faced the challenge of transitioning to a more democratic and capitalistic society. For Eastern Europeans, the sudden availability of all these consumer products on the marketplace was a deluge. When asked, what words and images do you associate with choice? Gregors from Warsaw said, ah, for me it is fear. There are some dilemmas, you see. I am used to no choice. Bodin from Kiev said, in response to how he felt about the new consumer marketplace, it is too much. We do not need everything that is there. And Tomas, a young Polish man, said, I do not need 20 kinds of chewing gum. I don't mean to say that I want no choice, but many of these choices are quite artificial. The value of choice depends on our ability to perceive differences between the options. When there are too many choices to compare and contrast, instead of making better choices, we become overwhelmed by choice sometimes even afraid of it. Americans have so often tried to disseminate their ideas of choice, believing that they will be or ought to be welcomed with open hearts and minds. But the history books and the daily news tell us it doesn't always work out that way. Americans themselves are discovering that unlimited choice seems more attractive in theory than in practice. No matter where we're from, we all have a responsibility to open ourselves up to a wider array of what choice can do and what it can represent. It teaches us when and how to act. It brings us that much closer to inspiring the hope and achieving the freedom that choice promises but doesn't always deliver. If we learn to speak to one another, then we can begin to see choice in all its strangeness, complexity, and compelling beauty. Thank you. Sheena Yengar teaches at Columbia Business School. You can see all of her talks at TED.com. Have you ever been to, to TGI Fridays? I mean, talk about paralysis. I actually have not been to TGIFs. <laughs> I am a big Shake Shack girl, and I am a big In-N-Out Burger girl, and I guess that is because it really is just one choice. <laughs> yeah, so you would have a you would have a nervous breakdown at TGI Fridays. No, I'd probably just ask the waiter or waitress to tell me what to get, and I'd be happy with that. <laughs> Do you have a hard time making choices or, or, or is it like pretty easy for you to do that? I cannot make a decision to save my life. Oh, wow. Really? You're you're the decision choice person. I'm a terrible decision That leaves maker. no hope for the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> this is Ruth Chang. She's a professor of philosophy at Rutgers University and she studies hard choices. So what I should say is I used to be a terrible decision maker. Ah, okay. But that's how I got interested in thinking about hard choices. Can you, uh, can you help me make a decision about something? Sure. I can't tell you exactly what it is. I just need to know what to do. So I believe that there are five steps to confronting a difficult decision. Okay. Do you want to hear the five steps? Yeah, I do. Okay. The first thing you have to do when you're confronting a hard choice is to figure out what matters in the choice between the alternatives. So, like, write them down. Write them down. And there'll be a mishmash. Okay. Then you lather, rinse, and repeat. You go back and you think, well, gee, did I miss something that matters in the choice? Yeah. Then you recognize that you're in a hard choice. There is no best answer. The next step, commit to one of the options. Hmm. Create a reason for yourself to pursue that option. Okay, so, uh, so what's five? So five is not really a step. It's more of a consequence 
when you commit to something, you create your own identity. You make yourself into who you are. Those are the five steps. Okay. I admit, a five-step plan might sound way too simple, especially when you have to make a big choice. But Ruth Chang says it doesn't actually have to be that hard. Here she is on the TED stage. I think we've misunderstood hard choices and the role they play in our lives. We shouldn't think that all hard choices are big. Let's say you're deciding what to have for breakfast. You could have high-fiber brand cereal or a chocolate donut. The cereal is better for you, the donut tastes way better, but neither is better than the other overall, a hard choice. Realizing that small choices can also be hard may make big hard choices seem less intractable. What makes a choice hard is the way the alternatives relate. In an easy choice, one alternative is better than the other. In a hard choice, one alternative is better in some ways, the other alternative is better in other ways, and neither is better than the other overall. When I graduated from college, I couldn't decide between two <coughs> careers, philosophy and law. So I got out my yellow pad, I drew a line down the middle, and I tried my best to think of the reasons for and against each alternative. I did what many of us do in hard choices. I took the safest option. And as I discovered, lawyering didn't quite fit. It wasn't who I was. So now I'm a philosopher, and I study hard choices. And I can tell you that fear of the unknown, while a common motivational default in dealing with hard choices, rests on a misconception of them. Hard choices are hard not because of us or our ignorance. They're hard because there is no best option. Okay, here's a, a recent example from my own life. Was, this is a small decision, uh, but it was actually really hard. Uh, we were at a, a fish restaurant where they're really famous for their fish and chips, but the haddock was really fresh that night. So I ordered the haddock, but then they brought the fish and chips to my son. And when I watched him eat it, I was really regretting the choice I made. Okay, two things that might be happening in that case. One is that you just made a mistake, right? The cod was better. The haddock was pretty good, I have to say. But if the cod was better than the haddock, then you made a mistake. But how would I know, right? I mean, I guess I could taste them and then decide. Yeah. I mean, that's like asking, how do we know when one thing is better than the other? That's very difficult. How do we know anything? What I'm interested in is the second possibility, which is suppose the cod was better in some of those respects, the haddock was better in other respects, and yet neither seemed to you at least as good as the other overall. And it's going to sound crazy when we're talking about fish dinners, yeah. but one possibility is to commit to one of the dinners. Right? I commit yep. to cod. Okay. I'm a cod guy, and by committing to the cod you actually can create a reason for you to have the cod, which then may give you most reason to choose the cod over the haddock. Now that seems less crazy when we're talking about careers, right? Or people to marry or places to live. Yeah. But the structure of each of those choices will be the same. When we come back, Ruth Chang on why committing to a decision not only helps you make the right choice, but helps define who you are. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to a few of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Smartwater. Smartwater aims to go beyond what others are doing. Taking inspiration from the clouds themselves, Smartwater one-ups them by adding electrolytes for a clean, crisp taste. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Thanks also to American Express. Lots of people have great ideas, but turning ideas into reality is tricky. Far fewer people do that, and it's even harder for them to do it alone. Whether those people need big strategic thinking or day-to-day -day business help, American Express believes support is part of the magic formula. After all, there's no I in we. No matter what your idea, big or small, you don't have to go it alone because American Express has your back. 
don't live life without it. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, decisions. And we were just hearing from philosopher Ruth Chang on why both big and small decisions can be hard. But one way to make them easier is to commit. So suppose you spent your whole life never committing to anything, never putting your agency behind something. You drift through life, which most of us do. Well, what's sad is that you've never exercised this amazing power you have to create reasons for yourself. When you drift through life, you're never the author of your own life. You're just something being buffeted around by your circumstances. I think that what we've missed is that we have this other capacity to commit to things and to actually write the story of our own lives by committing to people and projects and plans of actions that then create reasons for ourselves to live one way as opposed to another. Here's more from Ruth Chang on the TED stage. I think the puzzle arises because of an unreflective assumption we make about value. If what matters to us can't be represented by real numbers, then there's no reason to believe that in choice, there are only three possibilities, that one alternative is better, worse, or equal to the other. We need to introduce a new fourth relation beyond being better, worse, or equal that describes what's going on in hard choices. I like to say that the alternatives are on a par. When alternatives are on a par, it may matter very much which you choose. But one alternative isn't better than the other. That's why the choice is hard. Understanding hard choices in this way uncovers something about ourselves we didn't know. You faced alternatives that were on a par, hard choices. And you made reasons for yourself to choose the exact hobbies you do, to live in the exact house you do, to work at the exact job you do. It's here in the space of hard choices that we get to exercise our normative power. We can put our very selves behind an option. Here's where I stand. Here's who I am. Far from being sources of agony and dread, hard choices are precious opportunities for us to celebrate what is special about the human condition, that we have the power to create reasons for ourselves to become the distinctive people that we are. So I, I completely hear you, and I, I heard Sheena and I heard Malcolm. But it's still hard. Like, making a big decision is still sometimes agonizing. So, so how do we make peace with it? So when people agonize over hard choices, the source of the agony is usually lack of information. If only I knew how this alternative would work out, I would know that this is better than that. And what I want to say is that's a mistake, that even if you had a video of your two possible futures, and you could watch them side by side, it could be the case that your two future careers, let's say being a lumberjack and being an accountant, are on a par. Even some omniscient being couldn't determine, look, this life for you, this future life is better than that one. And now the question is, well, what do you do? And I think what you should do is turn inwards and ask yourself, what can I commit to? If you can commit to one of the options, then by putting your agency behind that option, you can actually do this incredible thing, which is you can confer value on that option. You can make it the case that now you have this reason to pursue that option that you didn't have before. And I think that's a power all rational agents have. Ruth Chang, she's a professor of philosophy at Rutgers University. You can find her talk at TED.com.
So, so Ruth Chang was just saying that she used to be terrible at making decisions. Uh, how about you? Are you good at making decisions? Uh, some. Uh, I'm really good about giving other people advice about how to make their decisions. This is Dan Ariely. Officially, I'm the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University. And this entire show, we've been talking about how to make decisions. But Dan says, even though we think we are making decisions, a lot of decisions are actually made for us in ways we don't even realize and can't control. It's an idea called choice architecture. Choice architecture is the idea that the decisions we make are a function of the environment that we're in. And on the TED stage, Dan explained one example. He showed the audience a chart. It's a chart that plots the percentage of Europeans who signed up for organ donation. And this is one of my favorite plots in social sciences. And these are different countries in Europe. And you basically see two types of countries. Countries on the right that seems to be giving a lot and countries on the left that seems to be giving very little or you know, much less. The question is why? Why do some countries give a lot and some countries give a little? When you ask people this question, they usually think that it has to be something about culture, right? How much do you care about people? Giving your organs to somebody else is probably about how much you care about society. Or maybe it is about religion. But if you look at this plot, you could see that countries that we think about as very similar actually exhibit very different behavior. For example, Sweden is all the way on the right, and Denmark, that we think is culturally very similar, is all the way on the left. Germany is on the left, and Austria is on the right. The Netherlands is on the left, and Belgium is on the right. And by the way, the Netherlands is an interesting story. You see, the Netherlands is kind of the biggest of the small group. Turns out that they got to 28% after mailing every household in the country a letter begging people to join this organ donation program. Right, so you know the expression, begging only gets you so far? It's 28% in organ donation. (laughs) But whatever the countries on the right are doing, they're doing a much better job than begging. So what are they doing? Turns out the secret has to do with the form at the DMV. And here's the story. The countries on the left have a form at the DMV that looks something like this. Check the box below if you want to participate in the organ donor program. And what happens? People don't check and they don't join. The countries on the right, the ones that give a lot, have a slightly different form. It says check the box below if you don't want to participate. (laughs) Interestingly enough, when people get this, they again don't check, but now they join (laughs) the program. Now, think about what this means. You know, we, we wake up in the morning and we feel we make decisions. We wake up in the morning and we open the closet and we feel that we decide what to wear and we open the refrigerator and we feel that we decide what to eat. And what this is actually saying that much of these decisions are not residing within us. They're residing by the person who's designing that form. When you walk into the DMV, the person who designed the form will have a huge influence on what you'll end up doing. So, so most uh, or all of the decisions we make are, are made for us? Absolutely. It's kind of a very uh, stressful thought. Yeah. But this, this is choice architecture, this notion that we make decisions as a function of the environment that we're in. So if I put you in one kind of buffet, you would eat in this way. If I'll put you in another kind of buffet, you will eat very differently. If I'll set up your phone with some kind of notifications, you'll end up spending much more time on Facebook. If I'll send it with another kind of notification, you will spend much more time reading the news or something else. But this example with the organ donation has, has a couple of important things. Imagine the following study. Uh, we have a group of people, we send them to the Department of Motor Vehicle, half of them get the opt-in form, half of them get the opt-out form, and then you stop people when they come out. And you say, excuse me, can you tell me, I see that you didn't donate, I see you donated, you, and I say, can you explain to me why, why you did what you did? Does anybody say, I have no idea, this was the default choice, I didn't, anybody says I was too lazy? No. What happened is that people tell stories about why they made those decisions. They portray them as, as if they spent the whole week on that decision. So yeah. people who were in the opt-in form say things like, you know, I'm really worried about the medical system and whether some physicians will pull the plug a little too early if I do this. And people in the opt-out form says, you know, my parents raised me to be a caring, wonderful human being. And what happens, we don't make the decision 
but we tell up a story about why we do it. And the stories are so good that we even convince ourselves that the decisions we make are actually because of our preferences and not because somebody else uh, made something. Most decisions are unconscious. Like I woke up this morning and I took a shower and I made breakfast and coffee. And I didn't think about, I mean, I thought about what breakfast to make for my kids. And uh, but, but these were things that I had already decided even before I started to do them. Yes. And, and you know, we have to make lots of decisions all the time and we don't have the capacity or the resources to do it. So we make the easy decision. And, and I'll tell you a story about a company called Express Script. Mm-hmm. They manage pharmaceutical benefits. They do all kinds of things. But one of the things they do is they send people with chronic illness medication over the mail every 90 days. And what Express Scripts tries to do is to switch you from taking branded medication to generic medication. And they write you a letter and they say, dear guy, uh, you're going to save money, your employer will save money, we will save money if you only switch to generic. And people don't switch. And they try all kinds of approaches and people don't switch. So for one year, they offer people zero copay. Hmm. Less than 10% of the people switched, right? So they said, look, you give people free medications, free generic medication, and even with free, they're not getting it. And they say, could it be that people really hate generic medications so much that even free is not helpful? And, and the answer was to say, look, it could be that people hate generic medication, but it could be that people hate doing anything. Hmm. I said, let's look at the details, at the choice architecture of what you're doing. Right now, people start with branded, They can do nothing and stay with branded. Or they could do something and move to generics. So the first thought was to say, let's reverse things. Let's send people a letter and say, we are going to switch you to generics. This is the path of least resistance. You don't have to do anything. It turns out this is illegal (laughs) in this domain. But instead, what they did was they sent people a letter and they say, if you don't return this letter, we will be forced to stop your medications. But when you return this letter, you can choose branded at this price or generic at this price. What happened now? Between 70 and 80% of the people switched depend on the employer. So what does it tell you? Do people like branded or generics? Well, it tells people don't care. Yeah. Right? People don't care so much. And the big issue in the whole thing was returning a letter. Now, when we set up the decision, we think it's a decision about branded versus generic. But the reality is a, it's a decision about choice architecture. And as long as we understand this, uh, we could re-engineer the environment in a different way. Yeah, so, so really, I mean, the, the person doing that engineering, like the, the form designer, right, they have a lot of power to, to kind of shape our decisions to their own advantage. I mean, companies that are trying to sell us stuff, certainly they must know this, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and think about the following. Think about this notion of uh, choice architecture. Every store, every restaurant, every kiosk, every app is an actor in our environment. Now, you can say, what is the goal of these actors? Are they working in our long-term best interest or are they working in their short-term best interest? And the answer is, of course, that they're working in their short-term best interest, right? All of them want our time, money, and attention right now. And because they control our environment, we fail. Now, do we fail all the time? No, but we certainly fail a lot. give you one more example for this. This was an ad from The Economist a few years ago that gave us three choices. An online subscription for $59, a print subscription for $125, or you could get both for $125. (laughs) Now, I looked at this and I decided to do the experiment that I would have loved The Economist to do with me. I took this and I gave it to 100 students. I said, what would you choose? Most people wanted the combo deal. Thankfully, nobody wanted the dominated options. It means our students can read. <laughs> but now, if you have an option that nobody wants, you would take it off, right? So I, took, I printed another version of this when I eliminated the middle option, and I gave it to another 100 students. Uh, now the most popular option became the least popular, and the least popular became the most popular. What was happening is that option that was useless was useless in a sense that nobody wanted it but it wasn't useless in the sense that it helped people figure out what they wanted. In fact, relative to the option in the middle, which was 
get only the print for 125, the print and web for 125 looked like a fantastic deal. And as a consequence, people chose it. The general idea here, by the way, is that we actually don't know our preferences that well. And because we don't know our preferences that well, we're susceptible to all of these influences from the external forces, the defaults, the particular options that are presented to us, and so on. So if we wanted to, right, like how could we resist those external forces that clearly influence our decisions? Yeah. So first of all, I think we have to admit that we can't resist all, all forces. And it's true that we don't make our own decision, the environment does. But it's also true that we have a choice of what environments we want to create for ourselves. Hmm. So think about something like donuts. Okay. Imagine I came every morning to your office and I layered your desk with fresh donuts and croissants. What are the odds that at the end of the year you'll be as trim and healthy as you are right now? Very low, very low odds. And human will, right, our ability to make decisions is not in resisting the donuts when they're there. It's about deciding not to have donuts on the desk. So, you know, it's, it's very sad that we really are influenced dramatically by the environment, but each one of us is really a choice architect. Hmm. And this is the strength and, and the importance of choice architecture, that the environment that we put people in matters a great, great deal, much more than we understand. Yeah. Very few kids grow up and say, when I grow up, I want to be a form designer. But I want to be a form designer. They are the place where we make decisions. And if we think about those forms and we say, how do we design those forms to help people make the best decisions, there's lots of room there for improvement. Dan Ariely is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University. He's given many, many TED Talks. You can find all of them at TED.com. Should I stay or should I go now? Hey, thanks for listening to our show on decisions this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Janae West, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Thomas Liu. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us at tedradiohour at npr.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. It's at tedradiohour. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. NPR.